I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2007. Please enjoy. For the next few minutes, we're going to be speaking about a wonderfully entertaining and fascinating book called Two for the Road, Our Love Affair with American Food. And the authors are husband and wife Jane and Michael Stern. Perhaps you have read their uh, marvelous best-selling book called Road Food and all kinds of other books which they have written, contributing editors to uh, Gourmet Magazine. They uh, appear quite often on the Splendid Table, and perhaps you have listened to that over Wisconsin Public Radio. Uh, They live this life to the fullest and uh, have really gone out of their way to experience all that American cuisine has to offer, but in particular, in some of the back roads of the country. And uh, this latest book is about what this experience has been like to take to the road, to uh, eat uh, food off the beaten track, uh, to enjoy uh, the amazing variety which is to be found when one dares to venture outside the... uh, sort of tired tedium of American fast food. The book, again, is called Two for the Road, Our Love Affair with American Food. It's published by Houghton Mifflin. And Michael Stern, Jane Stern, we welcome you both to The Morning Show. Thanks. It's good to be here. Hi. Uh, say just a quick word to our listeners, and they can read in more detail about it in the book, of course, but how this great adventure began for you. Well, about 30 years ago, Jane and I... Um, started traveling around the country just for the heck of it. And the first thing we wanted to do was to find a guidebook that would tell us where to eat great local food, you know, whether that was barbecue in Tennessee or catfish in Mississippi or lobster rolls in Maine. We couldn't find that book. We kept looking. We couldn't find it. So at some point during our travels, as we kept kind of stumbling on these places and ferreting them out in one way or another, we thought, you know, we should write that book because we love these places so much. And a few years later, actually in 1978, the first edition of our guidebook, Road Food, was published. Hmm. You say that travel has done wonders for you as a couple. And uh, I think it would be interesting to just hear a couple of the most important ways in which this has really drawn the two of you together and, and also uh, sort of helped you appreciate the uniqueness of the other. It's a very intimate thing to uh, travel with somebody, be in the car, you know, day in, day out. And it's also extremely unusual to share a creative process with your spouse. Um, You know, a lot of people have their kids in common, and, and that's sort of what they talk about. Michael and I have the entire United States, and all of the great regional uh, road food places that we found over the years, it's, it's kind of um, amazing that we have been married for over 35 years. We're in the car with each other more than we're not, and we've uh, you know, made a great life out of it. And you know, one of the things that's so, so great about doing this together as a couple is that we share that sense of discovery. You know, when, when I, I know when I come across, when we come across, you know, a fabulous fried chicken restaurant in western Kentucky. It's so much more fun to share that sense of discovery with Jane, who I know knows exactly what I'm relishing about that place. Hmm. That's right. That's part of what makes this interesting, is that you are not clones of one another. You each 
have a tendency to kind of enjoy different things. I think you, Michael, are a bit more adventurous than Jane is, I in think. In terms of what I will eat, absolutely, yes. Jane is actually, believe it or not, given her profession, a very finicky eater. Um, there are whole food groups that she won't even touch. Uh, I, on the other hand, will eat almost anything at least one time just to try it out. And the food groups that I don't touch have nothing to do with health, health consciousness. I mean, my favorite food group is candy and pie <laughs> and cake. Uh, I just have this aversion to condiments. I hate mustard and mayonnaise and Miracle Whip and uh, pickles and relish. So anything that has those on them, Michael has to eat. <laughs> One thing that is interesting is is thinking about the pace of of what you have done and that uh i mean one of your chapters is called 12 meals a day and depending on where you are in the country i mean there have been times when that has been literally true i mean give us some idea of of how that can be possible of how you can accomplish 12 meals in a day well we explain in two for the road how essential it is to be a morning person to do our job because it's our belief that some of the very best local restaurants are those that open before dawn for breakfast. Because not only are you likely to find, you know, the great cinnamon rolls or biscuits or country ham, but you're also going to find the local people, uh, the townsfolk gathering together and sharing their day with each other in a way and in a manner you won't find, I dare say, almost anywhere else in a, in a strange town. I think the, the, the real difference between what we do and our road food book and our other food books is that our guidebooks are very idiosyncratic. I mean, if you compare them to the mobile guide or the GAT or Fodor's, um, they have lots of reviewers who live in all different places and send in their reviews. Michael and I, over the course of 30 years, have never hired anyone to do to write up any place for us. We go everywhere by ourselves. So you know, it's it's uh, you know, we're for us to eat 12 meals a day. It's the only way we can cover such a large territory and uh, taste all the food. <laughs> I mean, at first glance, it seems like it would be so fun, and yet you say many people think it would be fun to travel with us. Many people would be wrong. In what way is this not fun? Well, I think it's fun for us, but I think for most people, our obsession with finding a great restaurant and great things to eat, I think, might get a little tedious. Well, would you, would you want to eat 12 meals a day? Uh, yes, actually. Oh, right. well, then you're welcome to join, join us. us. please. Yeah, I think most people you know, who, who enjoy eating do it at a much more leisurely pace than we do. Um, as Michael said, we get up really, really early in the morning, drive, 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 eat, 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 right, 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 drive, 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 eat, 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 right, right, right. And so we're, you know, we're on the move from like 4 a.m. until about 9 at night, and um, it can be very grueling. Mm. I mean, it's, it is the, the dream job. It is the most wonderful job. On the other hand, it, it, it's a little exhausting. Well, it's hard, probably harder work than it might seem to us at first glance. And you talk, too, about how in a place like Louisiana, there's an interesting place every block, but you get to the Dakotas and you say that 500 miles between meals might be common, especially if you don't want to eat at Wendy's or someplace like that. Well, it, that's, a, that's an important point. And the other important point, of course, is that while you know, our book, Road Food, lists all the great places we've found, for every one of those that is well worth 
recommending. We might eat in five, six, seven, eight restaurants that are mediocre or worse. So um, in that sense, that's the hard part of the job is like in a place, you know, Louisiana is a piece of cake. It's shooting fish in a barrel. Same with a lot of Midwestern areas where there's such great cultural diversity. But there are some parts of the country where it's, it's really hard to find anything good to eat and places that look good turn out not to be. And that can, that can get tough. We're speaking with Jane and Michael Stern about their newest book called Two for the Road, Our Love Affair with American Food. Um, you talk about, I, I mean, I think one of the most interesting things about this book and about your careers is that you have been there to see so many things change. I mean, you talk about the American landscape being so different 25, 30 years ago from uh, the way it is now. I mean, in terms of what you never saw then versus what you see everywhere now. There was a huge difference. I mean, of course there, were, there was fast food and franchise businesses 25 and 30 years ago, but not at all to the extent there is today. You know, today it, on the outskirts of many cities and towns, the, the, the roadside is identical. Uh, it's, you know, Shoemart, Walmart, Kmart, you know, one after another after another. When we started, that was, that was not the rule. It was, it was much more common to drive in the outskirts of town and find the mom-and-pop diner, the truck stop, the little cafe that only locals it, knew about. It used to be also that the fast food places were kind of ubiquitous, but now we have these, you know, kind of mid-level franchises like Applebee's and Chili's and Outback, and, and they are just, you know, everywhere. So it gets harder every year for the, the little places who don't have huge advertising budgets to stay in business. Hmm. But I, I will say this, and it's, I think it's important to say, is that while that's happened, and in our opinion, that's bad, one thing that the, the, the opposite has happened over the last 25 or 30 years, and that is we Americans have come to appreciate our local, regional specialties as a national treasure. And that's why I think our book, Road Food, is successful and why so many people want to climb in the car with us and do what we do because there are great treasures out there. And I think we Americans really have learned to appreciate it. And I think that's why, you know, if you really kind of look at what Applebee's and Chili's and Cracker Barrel are serving, they're serving regional American food. Um, You know, of course, in in our, you know, not-so-modest point of view, um, you don't need to go to a franchise place to eat it. And, in fact, you can eat the real McCoy um, fairly easily. I guess one sign of this uh, new appreciation, which we maybe have, even as some signs of it are, are winking out of existence, is the fact that there's some place that you talk about in your book uh, where you can actually go to what amounts to a restaurant menu museum, uh, and that you have really taken to 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 looking at menus and and really. Uh, uh, cherishing them the way you say bibliophiles like books. I mean, menus really can be a fascinating uh, snatch of our history. Well, we love menus, and and that's why there's an entire chapter in Two for the Road about menus. I don't mean just just like deciding what to eat. I mean just the, the prose that is used to describe the food, the pictures that are used. We especially love handwritten menus that we find we still find in many small-town cafes where basically the cook goes to the market that morning and whatever vegetables he or she finds, those are the ones that go on the menu that day. And, it's, you know, it's funny to read old menus because there were things that were on, it 
seen like every single old menu, like Limburger cheese. I mean, I don't think I've ever, I've not seen Limburger cheese on a menu for, you know, 25 years. Hmm. When you talk about how certain old menus, they might list um, 20 different ways to order the potatoes or long, long lists of, of vegetables that are available. I mean, uh, yeah. one doesn't see that even in this sort of choice-crazy world in which we live now. No, the, the, the art of making things like Lyonnaise potatoes and Duchess potatoes and p- potatoes au gratin. I mean, most restaurants, you're lucky if there are two or three kinds of potato. But, in fact, we, we were looking at the menu um, at Durgan Park, which actually is still there up in Boston, one of America's oldest restaurants. But we were looking at a menu from 100 years ago, and there were literally over a dozen different potatoes on the menu to go with your meat. Hmm. Um, one thing that is sort of uh, interesting is that, and you've already touched on it, that if one is going to be eating as many meals as you have, in fact, I think you estimate well over 70,000 meals you've enjoyed together in this, uh, in this odyssey, that there are some bad places to eat. There's some bad food out there, some things that are all but inedible. And you talk about this in a, another interesting chapter, kind of talking about two different ways in which food can be inedible. Well, yeah, that, that chapter is called the inedible complex. And, I mean, there are two ways. One is something prepared badly, you know, a burnt omelet, of which we've seen more than our fair share. The other problem, and this is an especial problem for us, because we like to be kind of cultural relativists about this, is food that is correctly or properly prepared but just does not fit our taste of what ought to be good. The best example of which, which we give in that chapter, is chitlins steamed in vinegar. Now, I have nothing against fried chitlins, which is the common way to serve them, but chitlins steamed in vinegar, let me tell you, the mere aroma of these things caused us to toss them out the window of our car as we were driving away from the restaurant where we got an order to go. We also found a restaurant in St. Louis that serves all parts of the pig, as they say, from the rooter to the tutor. <laughs> and yeah. one of the um, things that they served, which I have to say did not go in the pantheon of things we like, was a pig ear sandwich, which was just a giant, boiled, triangular, gristly, sinewy pig ear on a piece of bread. Um, not my favorite food. <laughs> <clears throat> <laughs> Where does one go after that? <laughs> <laughs> well, you actually could order uh, what they call the snout, the snoot sandwich, which is a pig snout. Um, that's much better than the pig ear. Yeah, because they fry it. You, know, uh, you basically deep fry dirt, and it would taste good. I'll, uh, I'll take your word for that, that, okay. uh, that the snout's better than the ear. One of the experiences, of course, of all of this goes beyond the, the food itself, and that is the fact that... Uh, you are experiencing this with, with other customers. And, and by its very nature, in a lot of these places, you are right there booth-to-booth uh, booth with locals. Um, and and that's been, that's been uh, interesting, and, and all the eavesdropping, which you have done over the years in, in a lot of these different places. Uh, and, and you write about that quite extensively in this book as well. Well, you know, the, the point is that as much as we are looking for the good food, we're also looking for a taste of America in a broader sense. And it's our belief that the very best way to find that is in the small-town cafe. And I mean, we've sat there and overheard mule traders figuring out how to, like, literally kind of puff up a 
an old ornery horse's leg so it looked fatter than it was for the sale that afternoon. And we were in on the Navajo Reservation in the Four Corners area, and we um, bought a raffle ticket. We had no idea what we bought the raffle ticket for, and we won. And what we won was a live sheep. So, you know, this doesn't usually happen in Connecticut, our hometown. Mm. I thought a really interesting point you made at one point, actually in a chapter called I Hear America Eating, is when you say that we, we talk a lot about the the wonderful tastes and smells in a, in a given restaurant, and of course the visible decor that, that one sees, or the lack thereof, uh, but you also talk in this chapter about how just to sort of sit back and listen to the sounds of these various kinds of restaurants in and of itself is kind of a fascinating thing. Yeah, and that's why cannot duplicate these experiences out of their environment. You know, I mean, you can't have a good barbecue in New York City. You can't have a good New York deli in, in Tennessee. You can't have waves breaking on the rocky coast of Maine in Nebraska. And, you know, it, it, the sounds that we pay attention to are not only um, the, the sounds of the accents on the people sitting there, the, the way the waitress talks about the food, nicknames for the food, but the very sound of the food preparation itself. In particular, I'm thinking of a lot of the great barbecues of the Carolinas. When you walk in, there's no music, but you hear a thump, 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 thump. And what that is is somebody in the back room hacking up the barbecue. And there's something about that rhythmic thump that makes us go, ah, we found a great place to eat. Hmm. I I think it would be interesting for us to finish by visiting an interesting list from actually rather early in the book. Um, you call, call it something about your, your, the do's and don'ts of road food radar. Mm, um, very important. Uh, yeah, a few of the, the things which you sort of like to avoid and, and a few things to which you are drawn in trying to find interesting places to eat. Well, I'll, we? I'll give you some of the must-to-avoid, Michael. You want to give the, uh, the things to do? Sure. Okay. We have always found, as a rule of thumb, that restaurants that build themselves as world-famous aren't or shouldn't be. Um, any place that has a big sign saying, um, we need cooks, we need waitresses, duh. You know, you can expect lousy food and to wait forever. Um, places that have signs that say, tour buses welcome, well, it's going to be a, you know, a big feed them fast place um and of course places that say going out of business you know <laughs> what do they care <laughs> i like uh, when you say uh, you should avoid places where the sign says world famous or mm-hmm. you know it kind of touts itself in a way in which it's it's like they don't trust themselves especially if they put it in quotation marks yeah, world famous that? right says who on the other hand we always do look for a restaurant that has a motto I don't know why, but restaurants that go to the trouble of actually establishing a motto tend to be really good or at least very interesting. I'm thinking in particular of a restaurant called Flo's that we found in Marseille, Illinois. And the motto of Flo's, emblazoned on the window at the front of the, of the restaurant, was, if I can't eat it, I won't serve it. Wow. If I owned that restaurant, they wouldn't serve pickles or mustard or mayonnaise. Interesting. And you also say uh, avoid the, the place that has the biggest ad in the yellow pages. I mean, again, I suppose then you're sort of 
talking about a place that in some ways might be catering to a lower denominator or something. Or... Well, exactly. And, and in some ways, it, it, there's a paradox here because sometimes the very best road food places have no ad in the yellow pages, maybe aren't even listed in the yellow pages. Or don't even have an address or a phone. And, and don't even have a sign outside, because everybody who goes there just knows about it. I, there's one in, uh, in outside of Charleston, South Carolina, called The Wreck. Um, and The Wreck has no sign whatsoever, but the people of Charleston line up to eat there because they have some of the most delicious seafood you'll find in the area. Hmm. Uh, Michael, give us a few of the things which you like to uh, look for, and maybe you can explain one to me. You say one thing you like to seek out is a place that does not serve booze. What does that have to do with it? Except in Louisiana. Well, there are exceptions. As Jane said, uh, in Louisiana and Maryland and upstate New York tend to have a lot of taverns that serve great regional food. But generally speaking, around the country, places where liquor is an important part of the formula, food is less important. The classic road food restaurant usually opens at 7 a.m. and closes at 2 in the afternoon. It's lunch and dinner. It's really for the farmers and the workmen of the town. It's not a, a, a place. It's not a supper club or a, you know, a place you go to drink. It's, it's really a place that serves kind of honest, upright uh, breakfasts and lunches. You say that a uh, good thing to look for is uh, old ladies with hairnets working in the kitchen. <laughs> Absolutely. We always peek in the kitchen and see who's there, if, it's, if at all possible. There's nothing nicer than seeing an old lady with her hands in flour up to her elbows, hand-forming biscuits about to go in the oven. Hmm. I'll tell you another thing we look for, and this is kind of quirky, but it seems to work most of the time. When we're traveling through a small town or, a, or along a highway, we always look for a gigantic animal on the roof of a restaurant. I don't mean a living one. I'm talking about like a fiberglass cow atop a steakhouse, a pig on top of a barbecue, a crab on top of a crab house around the Chesapeake Bay. Those are often indicators of really good stuff inside. Interesting. Um, I think one thing that might be worth briefly mentioning is that... Um, the economics for these out-of-the-way places remaining open can be uh, can be pretty difficult. I mean, as as a population dwindles and and just the, the 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 structure of the local economy might make it really difficult for a for a, a small out-of-the-way restaurant to to sustain itself. You tell an inspiring story, however, from I think someplace in the Dakotas in uh, Havana, North Dakota. Yeah, the the story is the story of the farmers in. I mean, what happened in the town of Havana, which used to be a kind of thriving town of, of uh, several thousand people, is that as, as farms conglomerated, the population shrunk to the point where it couldn't sustain on a profitable basis the town cafe, so the town cafe closed, at which point the remaining townspeople, all 94 of them, realized how much they missed that place, not so much for the food, which they could make at home, but for the social aspect, I mean, this was the place where they all came in the morning for their coffee and donuts and to share, you know, news about the weather, sports, whatever they were interested in. So what the town did, it was, it's really great. They got together and reopened this place as a communal enterprise. And what they did was to share the cooking, share the food prep, share the waiting responsibilities. And every day when you went to that restaurant, you, you, you got a different meal because it depended on who was cooking that day. Well, and one realizes, I mean, I guess they realized that that these places where people gathered, it was so 
important to them. It was like another kind of church experience, in a sense. It was. I mean, it's a, it's a place where they felt a sense of community that they really felt nowhere else in their lives. And what was wonderful for us, you know, obviously we don't live in Havana, North Dakota, was that when we came there, we were welcomed into that community because this place was so far out of the way that they saw very few strangers. And in fact, after Jane and I went there, I, rem- I remember after our first breakfast at the Farmer's Inn, three weeks later, somebody sent us a clipping from the, the Sargent County Teller, which was the newspaper they got. On the front page, the headline was, Two People from Connecticut Eat Breakfast at the Farmer's Inn. <laughs> I like how you described the landscape there. You said the stunning steadiness of the landscape. Absolutely the same soft farm fields for mile after mile along roads that are flat as a floor. But in the midst of it, this wonderful place called the Farmer's Inn. That and many more described in this fascinating book, entertaining book called Two for the Road, Our Love Affair with American Food. We should mention that there's an interesting appendix at the end in which you list all of these interesting restaurants, including a place in Milwaukee that you visited. And we should mention, too, that the book is dotted with uh, very intriguing, enticing recipes for some of the things which you have enjoyed eating across the country. The book, again, is called Two for the Road. It's published by Houghton Mifflin Company. Jane and Michael Stern, what a pleasure to read your book and to talk with you about it today on the morning show. My thanks to you. Thanks, Greg. It's been a pleasure for us, too.